My name is Becca McNeil. I'm a journalist and generally curious person wondering what's next for the group of folks affectionately known as the church. With sex scandals, megachurch meltdowns, and Trumpy troubles, are people giving up on Christianity? Or are there things worth holding on to? This is my podcast where we gather doubters, searchers, question askers, and healers to consider what's working and what's not in the faith traditions we grew up with. The goal isn't to find a new right answer or a how-to. The goal is to foster openness and curiosity, whether you believe it's time to build something new or burn something down. In this first season, we talk a lot about parenting. What do we want our kids to take with them? What do we want them to leave behind? We examine the role of parents, many of whom are grappling with their own spiritual questions as they walk with their children into this new day. I want us to like hold on to the grace of being all collectively forced to recognize that life is just absurd all the time. And, we, you know, everybody's got a million things going on. And only because we have are having this like collective global experience are we like forced to allow that for people. But it's like, you know what, that's true, even when there's not a global pandemic. So maybe we can hold on to a little bit of this flexibility. It's, I wish we could hold on to, and I am unfortunately a little bit pessimistic about us being able to, but I wish that we could hold on to the, especially the parent work flexibility because kids have been getting sick since long before COVID and having a sick kid is, has always been disruptive. And there's been, there's always been things like the school pickup does not coincide with the working hours and that kind of flexibility and that parenting visibility that we now have because we have zoom and kids, people's kids are running around the background. Right. Parents have always had the kids running around in their head and on their phones. And, you know, I can't tell you how many meetings I sat in and like tried to keep it all together while my phone is blowing up. Yeah. I'm going to interrupt us for a second to introduce you listeners. This is Layton Williams Burkus. She is a ordained PCUSA minister, writer, poet, many things. She's the author of Holy Disunity, a great book about the things we don't need to find agreement on in the church. <laughs> and I'm, gonna, I'm definitely going to ask her more about that, but I'm going to let you, Leighton, tell us how else you like to be known. Hmm, That's a great question. And it's kind of something that's evolving for me right now. I got married a year ago, so I'm learning that new spouse life. And I am an expectant parent. So that's a big part of my identity right now that's sort of new. And I don't know, we may go into to this or not, but I'm kind of in that weird space of it's not my first pregnancy, but it is mm. hopefully going to be my first living child. So yeah, a lot has changed, but I really connect with writer poets. So I'm glad you said that. I'm trying to, you know, make sure that I continue to carve out space in my life for that element. Let's see. I also identify, I think this is important for my story as bisexual. And so now that I live in like a very sort of quote unquote straight passing life in my like with my cishet husband and Mm -hmm. my upcoming biological child and my suburban house, I'm reckoning with how being bisexual looks different for me now than it did say five years ago. Um, I definitely want to talk more about that. 
Yeah, name it a little bit more. So yeah, I would say that too. I think that's kind of it right now. I'm not I'm not currently working anywhere. So I don't have like a this is what I'm doing right now. At the same time, I I love that you're someone who thinks about all of those relational elements in your life and identity elements as germane to your work. So mm-hmm. that's something I'm learning about being a writer, journalist even is that you're kind of always working, but not in the American capitalist sense of being on the clock and earning a wage. Like mm-hmm. you're not always at your job, but your life work is kind of always, ro- the tape's always rolling up there and mm-hmm. the experiences and all of that, it's being shaped, even if it hasn't been put onto paper yet. Yeah. And I think that that's actually a, I wish we made room culturally for more people to have that because I find that if I do have a day where a lot of things have come up that I need Mm -hmm. to deal with internally and work through and write through and all of that, it's so tempting to see that as like a wasted day or like a mental health day. When really I know that for me, that is like a, vital part of my work is being able to articulate and form and bring those things into work that is in the future. Yeah. It's interesting, you know, to talk about that specifically through the lens of writing. I come from like my, my sort of first background was creative writer fiction initially. And then even when I came into Sojourners first as a writer before joining this staff, it wasn't like straight journalism for me. The right. pieces I was publishing were like, let me tell you about my experience as a female pastor and people right. commenting on my body. It was like a harder transition for me when I joined the staff at a publication where we were also publishing like more traditional journalism, where there it seems like there's more of an exp- uh, expectation that you like disappear in your writing. Right. And it's like, I, I get it. And I still don't, can't really do it. This is all part of what I'm bringing, even if it's not overt in whatever piece I'm writing or whatever work I'm doing. It's like, I can only be the person that's doing the work that you like, because I'm all these other things too, you know? Exactly. And I've, I mean, I've been in the traditional journalism world for a decade now, and I came out of ministry into that. So it was a very big shift. Yeah. <laughs> But I have lobbied from early in my journalism career that journalists be more aware of who they are and what they're bringing. Because even if you can edit yourself out of a story, you can't edit yourself out of an interview and out of a presence in a situation. And your identity there in getting that information matters, like what you had access to, what the person was willing to tell you, the way that conversation went. And actually I realized this when I was pregnant. So I was in the field, giant pregnant. I have two kids. And so people would comment on it and it would inevitably start this conversation about, Oh, how's your pregnancy? You know, women always wanted to talk about their stories. Men would say, oh, when my wife was at that Mm -hmm. stage, we really had to crank down the air conditioner or whatever the thing was. Everyone had something to say. And at first I really hated it. Hmm. It felt 
like a, as a woman, you have had that experience because you've walked around as someone with breasts and a butt and all those things that invite comment yeah. regularly. And, you know, you've told to smile and all of that. But I'm also white. And so there is the certain like myth of invisibility there. Mm-hmm. And it was the first time I couldn't control people seeing me it felt like i couldn't hide it you know when once (laughs) once you're at eight months you're like the world gets to enjoy it but what i realized was i had always been in the room Mm -hmm. but people didn't necessarily comment on it and once we were talking about it i would find that after this long chit chat about my pregnancy we could really get into some good stuff with the story and i realized that going ahead and being embodied in the room as a journalist and acknowledging that and naming it with the person you're interviewing and seeing what that means for them. You know, if you're interviewing a man, acknowledging that me as a woman asking these questions might make you feel a certain way. If it's a white person interviewing a person of color, kind of owning these is a helpful tool for journalists. So I've kind of been an advocate for journalists acknowledging that they can't fully take themselves out of the story and writing accordingly. I like that. And, you know, honestly, I would say, I don't know if this is controversial or not. I guess I do know that it is, depending on who you talk to. But the times in my life when I've been working in parish ministry and traditional ministry, there's sort of old school thought of like my preaching professor, who I loved, but he was very adamant about don't ever tell any personal stories in your sermons. Interesting. I listened to him and like tried to follow his advice and whatever. But eventually I was like, this is where I connect with people. I think boundaries are crucially important in any line of work and and ministry is certainly one where that's very important. But I think, you know, when you show up as a human being with all of your human particularity, you just open this gateway for other people to show up in their human particularity, which as a minister means all sorts of things for relationship and community building. But as a writer also means that you're telling a fuller story than you get to tell. Otherwise, if everybody's showing up to the room as this, you know, polished, Mm. just the Instagram post version of ourselves. It's been, it's been interesting for this pregnancy. I mean, all three of my pregnancies have fallen during the pandemic. And so, and I've worked remotely when I've been working, I've worked remotely that entire time. But you know, it's like when I do go out in public and like people who know I'm pregnant, because I speak about it openly online and stuff. It is amazing the invitation people feel. Mm -hmm. And to your point, I mean, I think sometimes it really annoys me. And there can be gifts in that too. But it's been interesting to navigate a world that's turned so virtual during the pandemic and, and having that as a choice. Right. Like how much do I bring yeah. my pregnant body into the room when the room has no walls or anything? And it's oh, just kind that of is like such virtual. a question. The unwanted conversation, even and the unwanted, unasked for advice and opinion mm-hmm. and all of that. Part of me thinks that has more to do with the way we culturally relate to pregnancy, whether the person is standing in front of us or not, like the act of childbearing and child raising is very much something that we feel is a a national 
hmm. duty and like you're raising the next generation. And yeah, I, I've was talking to a friend who doesn't have kids. She just got married and her family has a lot of opinions about everything. She has, she's a super tight knit family. They're very in her business and she and I were talking and she's just kind of worn out by it. And I said, you know, Mm -hmm. I remember kind of being there, not to the extent it was ever my extended family, but even with my parents. And I didn't really start to draw boundaries until I had kids Mm -hmm. because suddenly it went from strong opinions to almost absolutes Mm -hmm. and like, You must do it this way. This is the right way. The stakes are incredibly high. They will die if you don't, or they'll go to prison if you don't. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And that's when I, for my own sanity, had to start putting down boundaries. And I'd always do it preemptively. I would say like, hey, everybody just wants you to know we're doing this and it's intentional. And this is a choice we've made. It is not negotiable. I understand you probably have opinions about it, but this is what we're doing. Thank you very much. Yeah. 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 It's interesting. This is a lighter version of that, but my husband and I have thus far opted not to share the name that we have in mind with anyone. Mm -hmm. And we, and part of that is even though we have a favorite and we have a a top favorites list that has frankly not really wavered. We still were like, what if we get to month eight and decide we feel differently? And we've like told all these people or mm-hmm. what if we see her and it doesn't fit? <laughs> so part of it is is that, but part of it really was like, gosh, what a thing people will like tell you what they think about, you know? And I just was like, you know what? You are certainly entitled to your opinion, but I'm going to wait until you don't feel comfortable expressing it to my face because my baby is there and has a legal name (laughs) and you can say it when I'm not in the room. It's driving my family nuts, you know, and we're very close knit and and they've actually been pretty wonderful throughout this pregnancy. All my siblings have kids and just lots of places to go for support, which has been great. But every once in a while I get a text that's like, so have you landed on a name yet? Are you really not going to tell? And it was, though, those little things that start to set the tone for Mm -hmm. we make these decisions and we share them with you, not we have a question and we come to you for answers. There's almost this tension point I recognize, and I haven't really thought about this before now when we're talking about it, but... You know, on the one hand, I feel like this is a very common conversation among pregnant people and previously pregnant people like, oh, God, like everybody has an opinion and it continues when you become a parent. And it's, you know, like people will continue to just volunteer absolutes, as you say, and and all of this stuff. And then on the other hand, there is a conversation I feel like a lot maybe happening on a different level, at least in the U.S., about how historically parenting was not meant to be an isolated endeavor, particularly when the pandemic hit and you had people, I mean, I had just moved to be close to family, which was wonderful, even as a non-parent, but people who were isolated from their families of origin or didn't have relationships with those people or were new in town, all of a sudden, you know, they're left to do this parenting thing in a totally upended world and in isolation and we're not made for that. So I almost wonder if 
perhaps I'm giving more credit than is due here, but like that tendency to weigh in and whatever is a bit of a holdover from a time when this was more of a, you weren't, it was also the positive experience of you weren't ever fully alone in this, right? Like, yeah, yeah, that's, I mean, that is a generous take. And I think you're right. I think where we have to find the tension and this is worth discussing is can we offer that support without control over the decisions? Like, will you support me if I make a decision you don't agree with? Mm -hmm. And that is a bigger question for the entire religious enterprise. Mm -hmm. Would you support my marriage if it was to someone of the same gender? Right. Would you support a woman who has had an abortion as she recovers? Or do we withdraw support if you make a decision that I don't agree with? Right. And so I think those things, because I do think the support of each other and our children is essential and something I want to really claim, but I have always felt like some of that support was contingent upon my doing things the way the person supporting me wanted me to do them. Yeah. I think we like, yeah, I think you're right that this is so much broader than just parenting, but it's certainly very evident in parenting. And in some ways is what my book gets at, which is Mm -hmm. that we come in, we come into contested spaces so much with like a, a tendency towards black and white thinking or like sort of absolutist thinking, either or thinking. And, and there's this imperative that community hinges on getting to the same exact place. This is a tricky conversation because when there are lives at stake and justice issues at stake, I don't think it's just a matter of saying agree to disagree. I mean, that's my whole thing. It's like, that's a cop-out. But how do we train ourselves to be comfortable with the lack of resolution, right? Like I'm going to, you know, in a parenting context, I may feel deeply that what you're doing is not the best way to go about this. But my role in showing up for you in part means living in that tension of I feel this way, but my support for you outweighs my need to be right, right? Right. Or my need to, I don't know, it's, this is a silly (laughs) reference to make, but when you were talking, it was making me think of Ted Lasso. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't know if you watched it. Ted Lasso. The the dart scene, and he does the whole be curious, not judgmental. Yes. Right? I, yes. You know, I think more broadly, our posture coming into a lot of conversations of high gravity and high value is very like coming to a point as mm-hmm. opposed to like coming to an opening. Well, and undergirding that is the belief that there is a right answer. There mm-hmm. isn't like the, the ultimate answer can be found. And you see that in a lot of our presumptions about the way we interpret the Bible, about the way we conceive God, there isn't an awareness that while yes, ontologically things either are or aren't, you know, I'm not quite ready to give up on dualism at that level, but we may never know. I, right. I'm postmodern enough (laughs) to say there's a lot of, reality that we 
aren't equipped to understand and conceive. I think of Mm -hmm. God that way, just because there is something that is true about God doesn't mean I can necessarily know it because it is, I'm finite and I'm bound by what I can take in. And if you have that belief that all that is true can be known, understood, grasped, and built upon, I think it's very hard to accept the idea that there could be two good things that are in tension or two negative outcomes that can't be avoided, like that one or the other. And Jamal Green wrote a great book. It's called How Rights Went Wrong. I'll have to look it up. I'll put it in the show notes. And it's basically about how in the United States, we take a stance about your rights and it's absolute. And so we solve all of our problems by putting it to the courts and they have to rule who has the right in this situation. And he said, if you look at those hot topics, abortion, end of Mm -hmm. life care, that kind of stuff. If you look at how other countries have resolved it, that don't have as strong of a litigious habit, Mm -hmm. there is a, well, we have to consider both the rights of a woman and the gravity of a human life. Right. And we want to get to a place and you see it in our discourse, you see it in how we, everything gets bopped up to the Supreme court in order to make a decision. And Jamal Green is saying his argument is that it should be a legislative process where there is discussion Mm. and trading and nuancing and all of that. And no, no side gets their perfect answer, but both sides are heard. Right. And it allows for people to follow along a spectrum in between them. Yeah. In my book, I talk about uh, this concept of the myth of arriving, which Mm -hmm. kind of sounds a little bit like what you're talking about, like that we operate under this assumption that we're going to decide something and and it's going to bring us to the quote unquote right definitive answer. And that somehow eventually we're going to do that about every question ever. And in this lifetime, we're going to hit a point of like, all right, it's all solved. We're good. From a faith perspective, I don't think I could be wrong. I I think even branches of Christianity that I have a lot of difference with Mm -hmm. would agree that that's not what we believe is happening in this temporal moment. Like we're going to figure it all out on our own as human beings and have all the answers. You know, I was talking about this with friends the other day, uh, this whole, you know, for now you see through a mirror dimly and Mm -hmm. then you shall see face to face, right? There is this sort of embedded sense that even if what we what we know is true. There is other, there, there is more that we don't know. Right. That is also true. What I think is interesting about accepting that as a beautiful thing and as a gift, as a, as opposed to something to be wary of or fearful of, because, oh no, how do we, how do we (laughs) arrive if we have to acknowledge that we're never going to know it all is that every person becomes an opportunity to encounter new truth right? It's yes. like, because we are all coming from these unique perspectives, going back to what we were saying earlier about bringing your whole human self into conversations. If each of us can know something true of God and the world, and none of us is standing in exactly the same context, vantage point, place, then like everybody is getting a slightly different 
view of what is true. And so everybody that we encounter is an opportunity to discover a truth we didn't know before, which can be a really wonderful thing. But it doesn't mean that like at the end of the conversation, okay, your two truths add together and there it is, because there's still more beyond that, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think, yeah, I think that's really interesting what you're saying about sort of our cultural or legal tendency to, to get to a very like final exact sort of ruling on things yeah. um, where one is right and the other is wrong. And there's just no room for nuance because from a faith perspective, I would say that runs very contrary to what I believe. It's not just the truth that I see. It's when you get to know someone, your initial impressions of them. We talk about your initial impressions being wrong, but really they're just incomplete. And yes. as you get to know your kids, as your kids are growing, there are facets of them that were, have always been there, but they couldn't express them yet. Or it became more manifested as they became more social or mm -hmm. they discover something that really brings this small interest to life. And in a sense, they're evolving and it's getting to know that someone evolves, but that doesn't mean that they are actually a different person than they were. We use language that is very, you are that you were this, now you are this, but really it is an unfolding mm -hmm. of a humanity. And you, we get that when we see our, for instance, our spouses in other contexts, like you're mm -hmm. getting to know your spouse in your context. And then you go with him to his family and you're like, who even are you? What is this role that you play? And those right. things aren't not true about them when they're with you and then true about them. It's that a person who said, is the ocean in a drop? Like hmm. we are all this complication, but you're not seeing it all at any given point. And if that's true about a human being who is a finite number of cells and atoms, obviously it's true about the ever expanding universe and God that your understanding of it it doesn't make it any less potent and powerful and resonant and true. It just doesn't put boundaries on true. Yeah. Well, and again, I think it's like you can you can approach that reality from a place of fear of, gosh, so like I'm never really going to fully know my spouse. I'm never really fully going to understand my kid. That's terrifying. How will I, you know, make this work? How will I keep them safe? Whatever. Or it can just be like, what an incredible gift to have an endless possibility of ways to know somebody that if you're lucky enough to know each other your whole lives, you come to the end and there's still an, an infinite amount to know, which is just, and it's, you know, I think it's also speaking about it on the human level. One thing that's been interesting about my experience. So I'm 35 I'll be 36 a month after my baby is born. I spent a lot of my adult life single and up until the last year or so without, you know, having ever been pregnant or anything. And, you know, at that time I occupied a space of, of being really aware of who I was both individually and in terms of the cultural construct as a single adult and all of the ways that single adults can be overlooked or like non-parents get kind of like sidelined, et cetera, et cetera. And now I'm, I am getting to know myself in a new way, right? Because prior to this past year, I haven't had the opportunity to know myself as a potential parent. And it doesn't mean 
that had that not happened, had I gone down a different path, never gotten married, never had kids, I would be less complete. It's just, I would be discovering other truths about myself that I didn't previously know, right? It's a, you know, it's a, a universe of possibility. And that's true for everyone. And yeah, I, I agree with you. Like, if that's true for people, then how could it not be true for God and the world and everything else? We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back. Is there a poop theory or not? I don't think so. Do you believe in the poop fairy? Well, is there a toilet fairy? Not that I know of. There is a toilet fairy. What does the toilet fairy do? When you sleep on the toilet, it 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 puts the money in the toilet and we wake up and you and you look in the toilet and you find a piece of money. Do you often fall asleep on the toilet? No. Do you know anyone who falls asleep on the toilet? No. And the toilet fairy must not be very busy. What does she do when she's not delivering money to people who fell asleep on the toilet? She um she just hangs around inside the toilet. She hangs around inside the toilet? Yeah. She must live a pretty stinky life. No, she hangs around in the sewer. In the sewer? With the Ninja Turtles? Mm. Have they ever seen her? They got, she flushed them down the toilet herself. <gasps> Is she mean? No. She's nice? Yeah, she wanted them to live in the sewer. It's fun. It's fun. It does seem fun down there, doesn't it? Yeah. Would you like to go down in the sewer someday? Only if no one poops in that toilet that uh, that's sewer. Yeah. Oh, the fairy of me. Oh, I would not want to be pooped on, would you? We loved you. Mom? Just me? The poop fairy, too. talk more about if you're up for it miscarriage is not something we talk a lot about I have been through one you have been open and about yours and I would love to just hear your reflections on what that taught you about yourself God our world any of that because we don't talk about it and so I don't think there's a lot of discussion about lessons taken from it. It's usually something you say like, oh, this terrible thing happened. We're so sorry. And we talk sometimes Mm -hmm. about the pain of it, but we don't, it's not a experience most people reflect on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's very true. Just to give a little bit more detail on my experience. My first pregnancy was last spring. So I I found out in early April and then found out that I had miscarried at my like nine week appointment. Mm -hmm. So like the baby had like the heart had stopped beating more than a week prior or something. We don't know exactly, but I always say nine weeks because that's how far along I thought I was. And so like we had seen a heartbeat, Mm -hmm. like we'd already had an ultrasound. And so I think we had relaxed a little into the idea that this might stick one of my family members had been through a miscarriage, but the others had not. And so it wasn't like a super present reality for me. We had told everyone, mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, not publicly, but like our families just like a week prior. And so that one was, yeah, that was just 
that was really hard. I'll say more about that. But just to give the full scope, we started trying again right away. And it took three months, three or four months. I don't remember the exact number of cycles. And then I got pregnant again in September. And that was what they typically call a chemical pregnancy, which means, Mm -hmm. you know, within a week of finding out that I was pregnant before there was ever an ultrasound, I started bleeding and I knew Mm -hmm. that it was a miscarriage. So it's interesting to have two like very, Mm -hmm. not very different, but those are two different ways to encounter loss. Yes. And it's weird having, for me, I'm sure I would feel that it was weird if they had happened in the opposite order too. But for me, it was like interesting, I guess, to go from, I saw a baby on an ultrasound with a heartbeat. Mm -hmm. Like I saw my stomach start to just barely begin to bloat out. Right. Mm -hmm. And then like to have another loss that felt more intangible. Right. right? Cause it was like, it was very real. Like we had a week of pregnancy tests, but I didn't even get to go to the doctor. You know I mean? It was just, so like medically speaking, it doesn't count. Like it's not on my record. Oh, interesting. Yeah, because the doctor was never able to confirm the pregnancy, even though I like have this photo of my line progression, you know. Um, So yeah, I don't know. I, for me, I will say, first things first, when I was in the room finding out that I'd had my first miscarriage, one of the first things I thought about was a friend and ministry, ministry colleague who had posted about having a miscarriage like three months earlier on Facebook. And it was like the first time that I could remember seeing somebody really name it. Mm-hmm. And I thought of her immediately. And in like the worst moment of my life was like, I know of somebody else who's been in this exact place. And that was, my husband wasn't there with me. I mean, it was huge to like be sitting in this room, the tech person left to go talk to the doctor, <laughs> you know, you're just like alone. Yeah. And so for me, it became important to speak about it mm-hmm. to like create space. But I think you're right too. It's like, I think we've made progress a little with naming these realities and like the grief around them and the pain around them. But I think what's hard is that it just does, it just keeps going. It feels different. I was just commenting on Twitter yesterday. I think I got, I had just happened to have gotten my um, second shot of Moderna like a week before my miscarriage and they were unrelated. Yeah. But Mm -hmm. I went to get my booster on Tuesday of this week and you know, had a similar reaction to what I'd had to my second shot. And it was just literally walking into CVS. It's like I was suddenly back at my doctor's or yeah. at the hospital, you know, because it was just this temporal association. And that was the most direct reliving that I have had yet, right? Mm-hmm. Almost a full year later. So it's like every, it just unfolds differently. It feels different now being 21 and a half weeks pregnant, mm-hmm. you know, and thinking back, I think... It was definitely my first loss was very much a before and after moment for me in terms of, you know, I, with that first pregnancy, even I started a different (laughs) trajectory of life than I had ever been on before. Right. And with that loss, as people often say about various forms of grief, it's like I became someone who the bad things happened to. I feel like I will never really fully exhale again. Yeah, because now I know and I'm lucky that, you know, my life prior to that had not been marked by that kind of like totally world up ending grief. Yeah. Um, And so I hadn't really had. And so now I carry that forever. And so, you know, even though this child will, assuming praying all goes well, be my first living child, that that experience and the one that followed 
has influenced everything thus far about mm-hmm. how I have related to the child I'm carrying right now and probably how I will parent. This question of like, when do you become a parent? I don't know. It's it, I, I feel like I became a parent with my first pregnancy and yeah. I recognize that like, this is the first time I've like been pregnant enough to feel the baby moving around. And that's like a different kind of relating. Well, and in that sense, parenting is constantly unfolding. I've never been the parent of a teenager, but no one would say, right. This is going to sound so unnecessarily pretentious, but parenting is a construct. If you take that word away, you're a Mm -hmm. human being who grows and births and then raises another being and there's tons of activity involved and we relate to it differently it's an opportunity to be changed yourself but Mm -hmm. not necessarily it doesn't automatically change you you can be a selfish prick before or after Mm -hmm. (laughs) that's true (laughs) you can also be an amazing nurturer before and after Mm -hmm. you have to decide how it's going to change you there are people who feel strongly differently on that but i that's what i believe we don't all have the opportunity to have the same set of experiences. Some people have all girls. And so they don't ever do the specific yeah. parenting rituals around boy things and vice versa and all of that. But I do think that the experience of having another life growing inside of you is something biologically mm-hmm. and emotionally but I think desire, like desire and how you relate to it is really important. Like mm-hmm. I think we we don't give a lot of weight to disappointment and what that mm. does. And I, I someone told me a long time ago, and I'm so thankful that she did this. Um, so she said disappointment is a sneaky emotion that if you don't deal with it can really derail you. Mm-hmm. She just said that we tend to brush it off like, well, life is full of disappointments. And she said, no, it can shape the way you see a lot of things. And it can cause grief that you, that festers and grows and you don't ever deal with. And it can really hurt your relationships, steal your joy, all that stuff. And so she was instrumental for me in taking my disappointment more seriously. It only takes an hour to see those that pregnant pregnant on your pregnancy test and have an entire life planned and yeah. have all sorts mm-hmm. of hopes and dreams. And the longer you sit with that, the more they become realized and the more you actually get to do the thing you'd hoped, you know, the more you get to feel that first kick, the, they are born, you get to do a first birthday, all that stuff. But at no point would you say, okay, I've done it. Yeah. <laughs> There's always more. There's always a hundred years worth of hopes and dreams. Yeah. That you don't arrive. <laughs> no, you don't arrive. Exactly. And you are right. living in that hope and that expectation. And that hurts when it is changed. And I, I think that's so interesting what you said about becoming the kind of person that bad things happen to. I've never thought about that in that way, in that life shift that for many of like at some point most of us have that mm-hmm. moment because we are all mm-hmm. bad things can happen to any of us right i grew up a little more aware of being able to be that person so i'll tell my story too 
I miscarried when I didn't want to be pregnant. So mm. for me, it was this very emotionally complicated thing. I was going through a lot of stuff. Um, was married. I just wanted, didn't want to be pregnant right then. Mm-hmm. In the time between the pregnancy test and going to the doctor, had like mm-hmm. come to terms with it and was learning to be okay with it, finding things I could get excited about to kind of help myself not be so disgruntled. <laughs> and then went to the doctor and the preg- the sack was smaller than it should have been. She couldn't see a heartbeat. Mm-hmm. Said maybe maybe it's just not as far along as we thought. Come back in a week, you know. And then slowly I miscarried. And like the the most mixed my feelings have ever been. Mm -hmm. Um, So I had that. And then that was my first pregnancy experience. And then after that, I've had two children who are both still living. And weirdly throughout the entire pregnancy with both pregnancies, I expected something to go wrong. And Mm -hmm. I still kind of expect stuff to go wrong. Part of that's my disposition. And part of that is some stuff that happened early in life that made me think, yes, bad things happen to me. So for it's interesting to think about, for me, the journey was about learning that sometimes it goes right. Hmm. And I still have to learn that constantly. My husband is constantly like, your life is full of evidence that things go right. Hmm. But there are old wounds and experiences and stuff that have me convinced otherwise. And I think I'm wondering how much of being human is reconciling the things that have gone right in your life and the things that have gone wrong. Yeah. I think, you know, one thing I learned, (laughs) I don't know how like unique to me this is versus a common experience with miscarriage, but um, you know, you talked about disappointment and I think one thing that I discovered about myself or that was painted in really sharp relief after my first pregnancy loss was a how hard it is for me to accept that something can no longer be true like a definitive end Mm. to a possibility that I have decided exists right I mean for so long I just like I could not I couldn't quite wrap my head around the idea that there was just that that kid was never gonna exist that I could get pregnant again but but that particular timeline um had ended and I think too with that one of the reasons it was so hard for me to accept is because on some level and so I'm a four on the Enneagram and they say this is like a four thing like the power of fantasy right I think for both positive things and negative things I think I held on to the sense that I could exert some control over how things unfolded by the power of my own sort of perspective. And so I would, before my pregnancy loss, I would like guilt myself every time that I freaked out that I was going to lose the pregnancy. And then of course, when the miscarriage happened, it was, is it because I freaked out about, you know, to some extent, I think this pregnancy is, is a process of like, yes, bad things can can definitely happen and have and may again and good things can still happen. And the the sort of bitter pill of it all for me is I actually can't control it at all. Like nothing I do will. And the one thing I want to say, make sure I say um, related to faith about this, and this is like not a neat, <laughs> neat tie up way to talk about it, but nothing has been more challenging 
for my faith in the benevolence of God Mm. than miscarriage, right? Which is so interesting because it's like on a fundamental level, I'm like, Leighton, how could you possibly look at all of the other terrible, horrific things happening to people all over the world and need it to be this like one terrible thing that happened to you is the thing that you like can't accept that God would just not intervene. I think for me, it's because that was the moment when I was like, Oh, I really can't control this at all. Yes. But God can. And God's just, you know, I mean, it was just this like, how can you know that you can do that? Building on that, though, I think when you, and you could relate this to your sexual identity, to your miscarriages, to your current pregnancy, to all of it. And I think we all can. When you are living a reality that's different from the reality that they tell you will bring blessing. Like when you're living and you're saying, no matter what I do, no matter how I try to do what you're telling me to do, it's not changing my lived reality into what you say it should be. And Mm -hmm. for some of us, there's nothing in the world we can do to line up with that pathway that we think will control God and bind God into blessing us. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and I love that you tied that into the way like being queer can can also bring this up because this all brings me back to what we were talking about earlier with the like either or thinking and the need to to be comfortable with discomfort and non-resolution and ten- perpetual tension. Um, I have often said, and I said this in my book when I was writing it, that being particularly being bisexual because even in a lot of queer spaces, that's a contested identity, forced me to become okay with this idea of non-resolution and like a certain lack of control. I say that, obviously I still have control <laughs> control issues, but it did, it, it sort of forced me to relinquish a tendency I think we all have to kind of try to order the universe in order to hold back the tide of chaos, right? And what that does to our understanding. And I do think having experienced pregnancy loss myself, but also having, you know, I'm part of a community of people who are trying to conceive or are currently pregnant. And, uh, you know, so there are people who have been trying to get pregnant for four years that are struggling with various forms of infertility. And, you know, one thing I've learned from being in that community that I say a lot is this journey is hard and it's hard in a million different ways. And like, so no one of us really knows the kind of heart it is for somebody else. But over time, you learn that that lonely feeling of no one else gets this particular kind of heart. And it forces you to, to accept that this nuance, these unresolvable things just sort of exist. And the best thing you can do is be gracious to one another and loving toward one another and yourself and and sort of hold space for all of that complicatedness while still believing that good can happen. You know, Mm -hmm. some days I'm better at that than others, but I do think, yeah, I think those experiences can harden us and make us dig our heels in deeper to whatever semblances of control we can cling to, or they can break us open Mm -hmm. to an understanding of the world and the way life unfolds. That's more complex and, um, walks perhaps closer to the hard things, but also, you know, maintains 
how radical it is to be hopeful in the face of all of that. Yeah. With, I'm going to ask a question and you can tell me if this is out of bounds or in some way ignorant. Um, I have several bisexual friends and family members and Mm -hmm. have never asked them this, but have always observed their lives with this question. And that is that when inherent to that identity is that if you partner, Mm -hmm. there is going to be a very obvious, unsatisfied Mm -hmm. longing or piece of your sexuality that is no longer in full expression. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, monogamy in general rules out Mm -hmm. every other person, (laughs) every other potential sexual partner or romantic relationship or life partner. But I'm wondering how that experience for people who are bisexual is different than for someone who's heterosexual or gay or lesbian? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's definitely something I've spent a fair amount of time talking about. I would say it was something I used to worry about a lot prior to being with my spouse. And it's not like we got together and I was like, oh, this solves it. <laughs> I'm, I'm done. Girls Him forever, you know. Yeah. But um, but it is, you know, as somebody who is not who is monogamous, who's not polyamorous, that that was a question for me in terms of like, what if, you know, what does it mean to let go with the with the best hope that my marriage, you know, lasts and mm-hmm. <laughs> to let go of that life, right? And, you know, to be quite honest with you, I think it helps. I think it would be harder for me if I um, had a higher sex drive, which isn't something I've always known about myself, but I've just learned that like the kinds of intimacy I crave are not necessarily the things that are fundamentally different according to the sex or gender of your partner. Right. Interesting. Um, and, and, you know, Billy, my spouse and I, I would not, I think it would be misspeaking to say that these things are queer, but there are absolutely ways that our relationship runs contrary to traditional heteronormative sort of gender binaries in terms of like who does what in our relationship and who, you know, I'm the, I'm the like bill manager and all of the, you know, I'm the handyman and he's the nurturer, honestly. And so I like appreciate that the nature of our relationship continues to feel out, out of step with sort of normative thinking in a way that I don't know. It just makes me feel more connected to that part of my own identity. But I will say (laughs) the biggest thing that has helped me be at peace with the loss of this other potential life, right, has been becoming a parent. Because, you know, there was three years ago, I was not sure that I was ever going to be a parent. And I that's not the life that I personally wanted for myself. But I had spent a lot of time trying to like, come to peace with that possibility and what that life would look like. And, um, you know, (laughs) once there are kids, there are kids, you know, I mean, it's just like, and so that life is really definitively gone. I do. I, some, even though I'm like so grateful, so incredibly grateful to be pregnant and to have it going well so far. And I can't wait to meet my kid. I feel that grief that like that disappointment, right. Mm -hmm. Of the life that, that won't be, instead. And so I've just sort of started to feel like, like you kind of said at the beginning that life is actually full of those moments 
where we decide to to choose one life over another. I think the thing that stands out for me, which is worth naming, is I wrestle a lot with what it means to have chosen a life that is is more accepted by society at large than another life I might have chosen. It's important to me to still claim queer identity because Mm -hmm. I know a lot of women who identify as bisexual who are married to men and like didn't necessarily come out even to themselves until after they were married and Mm -hmm. question whether they belong in the conversation at all. Um, And I think they do. So (laughs) so I I think that's the separation of an identity versus a behavior. Right, exactly. But it is. But one of the things I have to reckon with is in the same way that like now being pregnant has invited me into conversations that I felt very much outside of before being married to a cishet man has smoothed paths for me that would not have been smoothed otherwise. That's definitely an area where I am. I think the best thing I can do is be perpetually a little uncomfortable with that. You know, this does not negate my queerness, but it does mean my lived experience is going to be really different Mm -hmm. than some other version of me, which is, you know, the lived experience of a lot of other people. Yeah. And so, yeah. Such good. That's such, I love it. It's one more, one more Mm non-arrival. Well, wrapping up what my last question, when you think of, I mean, your book is written to a, I would say Christianity grappling with some big divisions, some big fissures that have run through the community over the last century and kind of looking at what is our way forward. And on the podcast, I'm kind of putting to people in different ways based on the conversations we're having. What is the new day look like? And I think talking about kids is a great way to conceptualize that. What do you want to give your child? What do you want to pass on? What do you want them to see in you? That's a great question. My book was written a lot from the perspective. There, there's a tension that's present in my own story, right? Of um, I grew up in a church that was so fundamental to me and my life. I mean, it was like the anchor of my childhood. I was there almost every day and not in like a it was not any, it was a mainline Protestant Presbyterian church. Um, so it wasn't like there were churchy things happening every day. It's just my parents were like super involved. And so I'd be like running around the hallways and doing my homework up there. And it, it really was, you know, my parents were divorced growing up. And so I had two homes. And like, honestly, my church was really in, in even very physical, tangible ways, the, the through line, right? Mm. The thing that didn't change. And I felt very well loved in that community as a kid who was often out of sync and out of step with other people. And then, and it was, it was a church community at the time that was, I always say it was only really diverse in terms of ideology, right? I mean, it was a very white congregation, (laughs) largely affluent, but really ran the political spectrum. The whole LGBTQ reckoning within the Presbyterian church really forced that sort of unresolved tension in the church in a way that was really heartbreaking for me initially. And what I found in that experience was, and this is not a particularly generous way to talk about that church, which, you know, I still love very much. But at the time, what felt true to me was this church loved me so well and like taught me so deeply in my soul to believe that I was beloved by God. That even when that church 
would no longer proclaim that truth, I couldn't unbelieve it. Mm. And so I think my hope, I mean, honestly, I want so much in the church to break open. Like, I just don't think there's a path from where we are now to like a better church that doesn't come with a lot more crumbling. Right. But I hope that, and I think we're just going to keep screwing it up. I I honestly don't believe in my child's lifetime (laughs) that Christianity is going to figure it out. But I knew you were a kindred spirit. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I hope that she still learns that, right? Like I, I hope there, I hope the church teaches her that kind of just soul deep God belovedness in a way that, that feels authentic and unalienable. I don't know. I guess my hope would be that the church is, the church believes that more too, right? I hope that, I hope that the church learns its own best lesson and all of the perpetually unresolved tension that comes with that. I hope it just, I hope the church of, I hope this new day, whether that's like a church in the traditional sense at all, which is a whole nother conversation. I hope the new day looks less about this myth of arriving and more about how to love well in the complicated, messy present that we have. I love that. Leighton, thank you so much for being with me today. This has been lots of fun. Thank you for having me. It has been. Thanks so much for listening today. I hope you were encouraged, challenged, or something in between. If you didn't find the answers you'd hoped for, I hope you at least felt like someone else was asking the same questions. Please share the podcast with your friends and check the show notes for more information about my guests. And of course, thanks to my sponsors, Moira and Asa, for supporting the podcast with their humor, and Lewis, my husband, for running down to get the power cord every time I forgot it downstairs. I especially want to say thank you to the very talented Rex Stardy for my new original intro and outro music. Joke Break Music is by Pink Zebra. And everybody, thanks for being patient with my little in-house production. I know there's a lot of sound and editing imperfections. I'm learning as I go. So thanks for hanging in there and have a great new day.